Welcome to the podcast of ideas. On Monday the 3rd of April, the Future Cities Project and the Institute of Ideas Economy Forum hosted a Bookshop Barney event at the Building Centre in London to discuss an important new book on revitalising the economy. The author of Creative Destruction, How to Start an Economic Renaissance, Phil Mullen, introduced the main themes of the book and was then questioned by Austin Williams and the audience. Apologies for the sound quality of what follows, which is quite noisy, particularly the questions from the audience, but as those questions allowed Phil Mullen to develop and clarify his ideas, we've included them here for completeness. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, my name is Austin Williams, uh, Future Cities Project, and we're hosting this uh, in conjunction with the Institute of Ideas Economy Forum. So welcome to those here who have uh, financial uh, knowledge, uh, and uh, obviously the Building Trust. One of the reasons we came to the Building Trust for the bookshop, Barney, is that the book is actually full of tables. Uh, but anyway, but quickly moving on. Uh, just for, just to say, we have a readers group, uh, a few announcements, readers group, uh, which is on, on Wednesday. Elizabeth, if you could stand up, please. Uh, Elizabeth is the organizer of the readers group, which is on Wednesday at the Sun, Drury Lane, a parody of a, of a leftist caucus, but it's talking about Enough Said, What's Wrong with the Language of Politics by Mark Thompson. Anybody interested in going along to that, who's read the book, please uh, see Elizabeth. And secondly, we, our next bookshop, Barney, is in Shanghai on the 21st of April. Anybody there, uh, please come along. It's with Rob Schmitz on the Street of Eternal Happiness. If you want to have a really good read and not come to the Barney, that's fine. Uh, Street of Eternal Happiness. Okay, this Barney is on this book, uh, minus the, uh, the post-it notes, um, which is Creative Destruction, subtitled How to Start a, an, an Economic Renaissance. Very opportune moment to be talking about the economy, uh, given that uh, the Prime Minister has now triggered Article 50 at the end of March. Many people said it would be the end of May. Uh, and things are so bad. Uh, Settle down, settle down. Um, things are so bad that on the 26th of March, if you remember, last week, 26th of March, at half past eight in the evening, we were asked to turn our clocks back to 1930. <laughs> uh, so I'll move on. Uh, so Phil is an economist, a manager, uh, who researches, writes, and lectures on uh, demography, on uh, economics, and on business issues. Uh, for those of you who therefore think it's clear that he has no sense of humor, you're not going to be disappointed by this. <laughs> But actually, there may, may not be many laughs, but it's, I think it's essential reading, a really cracking read. Uh, it's proof positive that Marxist theory can be borne out in, in empirical data, proof positive that there's still scholarship in economics, and proof positive that actually economics can be interesting reading. So I recommend this book to you wholeheartedly. There's a short endorsement from the economist Andrew Sentence, literally a sentence, uh, saying this is a very challenging and stimulating analysis. Stimulating indeed. It's a hugely important book, I think. Uh, fascinating, enlightenment, enlightening, and it's only 12.99. But to you, tonight, 10 quid. <laughs> 10 quid. There's a pay, so, so when you kind of go walking past, picking up books, browsing, please remember to hand over some cash and get a copy. So the way this Barney works is this, that I've asked Phil to present for just five, Six, Eight. seven minutes. <laughs> yes. uh, inflation yeah. is such is such that you probably talk longer. Um, and then I've got a, maybe four or five questions to take a look. I've read any young people here. This is what we used to call the Kindle. 
uh, in the old days. Uh, I've read the pre-proof copy, so I've got quite a few questions uh, to ask, just to maybe give Phil more opportunity and frame out some questions for you, for those of you who haven't yet read the book. Uh, and then it's out to you in the audience. Yes, so it's a, it's a free-for-all. Uh, right, Phil, that's your love. Great. You. Well, thanks, Austin, first of all, for uh, hosting this. Thanks for the introduction. At least the non-humorous parts of it. Quite <laughs> flattering. Um, thank Colin, who I think has left now, but thank the Building Centre for hosting this, and Claire, on behalf of the Institute of Ideas, for her, and I think Jeff at the back there is here to uh, have all the help in organising this, so thank you all. Uh, and thank you for coming. Um, overwhelming the numbers here, um, so that's, that's really great. Uh, I don't suppose the free drink on a Monday night has got anything to do with it. Um, well, there was a couple of people over there. Probably was a decisive factor. Um, okay, what's the book about? Now, <clears throat> at one level, I can't hide it. This is a book about the economy, which I know Catherine's not a great selling point. So, but we, you know, we have to admit it. Um, but. The book is also, and in my mind more importantly, about the question of choice. It's about the fact that we, people, the demos, have got a choice to do something differently about how we should organise and revive the economy. That we can do something to help energise this economy. In fact, the most important reason that um, uh, uh, I wrote the book was my increasing frustration over recent years about the way in which our economic lives are being portrayed and have been portrayed in a very fatalist, fatalistic way, in the sense that we don't have much choice about economic matters, about you know, how we produce, what we get out of production, how we consume, and so on. The dominant narrative is that slow growth in Britain and all our industrial countries is something that we just have to put up with. We should resign ourselves to this, what we've read about in the papers, this productivity rut, this low productivity, flat productivity for something like the last 10 years in Britain and pretty poor <coughs> elsewhere. So it's frustrated also when, you know, after the financial crash, this concept arose, which I imagine many of you are familiar with, the new normal. That's what people were talking about. We've entered a new normal which was saying we've entered a period in which we have to see that there will be this protracted time of sluggish growth, and really we just have to resign ourselves to that. There isn't much we can do to change it. Now this fatalism about economic matters goes back way before the, uh, the financial crash. I see it really taking off since about the 1980s, especially pronounced since Thatcher's uh, popularization of the phrase Tina, there is no alternative, which she made one of her mantras during the course of the 1980s. Um, and it's that sense that there's no alternative, a sort of economic case sera, sera, a sort of economic what will be will be, which is what still predominates. It was quite well expressed by Tony Blair, who has a knack for being able to pick up on most of the backward ideas which are prominent at any time. Uh, he expressed it um, 
back in 2005, whenever there was a discussion going on, I think it was a Labour Party conference about globalisation. At the time, when people were saying, well, globalisation isn't the bees and ease necessarily. Um, you know, it is leaving some people behind. You know, certainly there's an echo of that discussion about globalisation uh, uh, very much today. Um, and in response to that sort of questioning of economic globalisation, he said, quote, I hear people say that we have to stop and debate globalisation. You might as well debate whether autumn should follow summer, end quote. So that's why you see that, 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 that economic phenomena like globalisation are presented like the nature's seasons and are as impervious to what we do about them as uh, uh, a season following after the previous. And I think this continues today in many, many areas. I think in many, many areas I see this uh, uh, economically deterministic discussions, not just about globalisation, uh, but about the levels of debt and what that means, about demography, another area I've written about, about automation and technology. So that fatalism determinism is what has motivated me to write. And in response to all that, I decided instead to write about the possibilities of, of people-led uh, change and of people-led renewal. That we're not the powerless victims of these um, supposedly impersonal, autonomous, abstract forces. There are choices that we can make to get out of the low growth, low productivity rut. Now, what's the book's focus for choice and focus for making change? Um, coincidentally, um, the focus of my, what I'm arguing needs to be changed, was the big idea in last month's Harvard Business Review. They have a big idea every month, so I don't know if anybody picked up on that. It was the cover story in their big idea. Um, any guesses? What they they call this the <coughs> defining fact of business today? Says the the prestigious Harvard Business Review. Trust. Which trust? Any other guesses? Trust. Trust. <laughs> Very good. Any advances on trust? Robots. Robots. Closer. Defining fact of business today. Lack of robots, perhaps more the point. Um, low productivity. Low productivity. Uh, they were being a bit more specific. Okay, I'll, I'll put you on your misery. Widening corporate inequality. Right, not income inequality, not wealth inequality, but the widening in corporate inequality, the defining fact of business today for them. And what they're referring to here is what they describe accurately as the performance gap or the productivity gap which exists in America, in Britain, many other advanced countries, where you have a small, tiny number of uh, the HBR, the Harvard Business Review, identifies 1% of profitable, cash-rich, innovative companies in contrast to the rest. For them, 99%, but others talk about the 95% of companies which are lower productivity, which are in some minor financial difficulties, declining cash reserves, and are generally uh, dwarfed by rising debts. So there's this division between a small number of rich companies who are doing innovation and the rest who are uh, uh, muddling along. And it's that idea of a sharply divided business world, yes, uh, which is what I describe in the book as a zombie economy. An economy which, while not bereft of all innovation, clearly there's innovation going on, I'm sure we'll discuss that, but innovation takes place by a few of the top businesses 
But overall, it's an economy which is dominated by firms with low and flatlining productivity. I call these the zombie businesses. Businesses that have enough income from somewhere to survive, uh, but are too weak to invest in their uh, 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 transformative uh, uh, investments to transform themselves and to innovate. And I go further than the Harvard Business Review, because I see this not as a defining fact of business today, I think it's the defining fact of the economy. I think it's at the root of why we have this low productivity, this productivity rut, which is holding, it, which is holding us back. Productivity <coughs> generally comes from two areas. It comes from a few companies who innovate, who do new things, who in, 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 introduce new technologies. But the second area of productivity, and the one which statistically, if you look back at the records, accounts for much more, probably between a half and three quarters of productivity growth, comes from the spread of those innovations across the rest of the economy. What they talk about is the diffusion of, of technology. And it's that diffusion, that spread of technology, which is what is being held back by the, uh, the zombie economy. The key point is that this diffusion machine, as some people talk about it, isn't working well when you have an economy which is so divided and so dominated by low productivity, low performing uh, businesses. It gets in the way of the new ones, it gets in the way of the expanding ones, and, uh, and prevents them taking their place. Now, an economy which is congested with so many zombies blocks that technology diffusion and the growth of productivity, just like road congestion will slow down um, all cars. Right? Just like when you have road congestion, it's not just the Ford Fiestas that get slowed down, it's also the high-performance cars will be slowed down. You know, the Ferraris, if you were lucky to have one, also gets held back by the congestion. Well, the zombie economy has that sort of effect too on the high-performance uh, businesses. They're also held back. They get tied up by the sluggish economic conditions. And this reinforces their existing caution. Even if the high-performing, the cash-rich, the supposedly innovative ones, it holds them back to reinforcing their caution and their existing risk aversion. As a result, even the leading businesses, the leading companies, aren't as innovative as they could be. Right? They tend to rely much more on marginal, incremental innovations rather than real radical breakthrough ones. Okay, to conclude, so where is the choice in the book that I'm uh, uh, referring to? Quite simply, my argument is that this divided economy, this what I call zombie economy, this corporate inequality, is not a spontaneous creation. It is primarily policy driven. So my argument in the book is that a whole range of government policies over the last 30 years have been directed, not necessarily consciously, but directed at the end of ensuring the stability of the economy. Stability has taken prominence, has come to the fore over the promotion of growth. And in, the sewing do, in doing this, rather, in, in so doing, these policies, which include state spending policies, they include procurement policies, they include easy monetary policies, they include regulation, they include taxation policies, they include insolvency rules, they include a whole range of regulations. These pro-stability policies, which have been to the fore, have the unintentional effect then of bringing about this zombie economy with this dismal uh, productivity performance. Hence, the book's call is for doing something about that. It's not something which is spontaneous or natural. It doesn't have to be that way. So the book calls for a national, popular debate about the need to reverse those policies. So we can slay, dispose of this zombie economy, and thereby open the way for focusing the resources that we have 
on the bringing about what is a very overdue fourth industrial revolution, because that's what we need if we're going to be able to create the high productivity, new innovative jobs and sectors and industries that we all need so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, as I say, there's, you know, I'm sure you all have questions already. Uh, many of you have not read the book yet, so if we just tease out a couple of issues, um, and then hopefully we'll give you more opportunities to come back. Let me just quickly say, um, Simon Jenkins wrote an article in The Guardian about two or three months ago about economists saying that they were experts distorted by politics. Mm-hmm. Economists were experts distorted by politics. And he was talking about the financial sector more than just economists, were saying they were reliant on paymasters, on policy, and all the rest of it. But in some ways, in the book, you criticize the political independence of the financial sector. It's, kind of an, it's almost like a reversion of what he's saying. The, so in terms of Simon Jenkins' position, is there anything wrong with the impartiality of the financial sector? You seem to be arguing for a much more... So are we talking about economists or the financial sector? Well, this is for you, this is for you to tease out now, because <laughs> Simon Jenkins was talking about the financial sector and the economy. Oh, was he? Okay. Well, yeah, the, the, the criticism I make in the book, or the point I think you're alluding to, is to do with the, um, the outsourcing of policy increasingly over the last 30 years out of the political arena. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that coincides with this sort of 30 years of, of policies which have been generally about uh, trying to enforce the status quo. And one of the ways that that has become, um, uh, 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 one of the ways that has worked its way through has been uh, the fact that it's been taken away from political discussion. So the same <clears throat> Tina that I mentioned, the same, the same phenomenon that was going on in the, in the 1980s, meant that there was an alternative to the economy as it was, an alternative to the market, but also meant there was no point in having discussions about alternative uh, political ways of, uh, or alternative ways of trying to run the economy. That's what it represented. And that coincided with this uh, sort of evacuation of economic policy from politics. So um, it became, uh, economic policy just became about managing the economy, uh, maintaining things as they were. I remember, again, uh, my friend, Tony, not my friend, but uh, uh, I, 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 a man, Tony Blair, who, who generally gets to the, uh, the, the crux of the matter, he was saying, um, it, it, we know that he said, the most important thing to me, he said, this was I think in the late 1980s, the most important thing wasn't, as we think, education, education, education. He said the most important thing is managing the economy for stability. That's what he said. He said, and he went on to give it a flair, as Tony Blair does, saying that stability is sexy, he said. He thought that would make an impact. But what, what, that, what he was saying there is that the purpose of economic policy is simply to manage things in a smoother way as possible. And that was going on at the time that uh, authority, responsibility for policy was being outsourced to people like the Bank of England. Coincidentally, again, Tony Blair had something to do with it. The first act of the 1997 New Labour Party, the New Labour government, was to uh, uh, give the Bank of England independence. And that is a pattern which has continued. Things like infrastructure, governments say, oh, we'll pass that on. You know, the airports will pass that on to, to commissions to deal with. And that's a problem. 
I don't think that's a problem because it takes out of the political arena because I'm saying what we need to do is repoliticize the economy to have a discussion about, in order to be able to put into practice that things can be different. Because you say even more than that, right? You say the future of the economy is not a financial issue. Quite, quite a strong statement. Page? <laughs> I have every page for every other quote, but let me tell you, that's what you said. Um, and you said instead, and I don't have the page for this either, right, but solutions must be found in politics, culture, and imagination. Yeah. Yes? Okay. So it's yeah. not a financial issue, but politics, culture, and imagination is what we should find solutions to the economy through. So it sounds a bit new age, so do you want to explain what you're, what you're getting at? Well, in terms of the in terms of the in terms of the, the finan- not being a financial crisis, that the problems aren't finance. Most books about the economy or what's going on at the moment do focus on the problems which arose from from the financial crash and what from what happened beyond that. Uh, and I situate the financial crash in my book within the context of why is it that we became an economy which was so dependent on debt, right? As you sort of have to unpeel things a bit. And in that sense, I'm saying the problems are not uh, financial, uh, in that although financial activities can uh, you know, create certain instabilities and so on, although we can have like financial bubbles and we can have debt implosions taking place and so on, to understand why those things are happening and to get to the root of them, you have to go, you have to go deeper. Yeah? And uh, uh, to, to, to jump to your second part of your question, which is the problems are more cultural rather than uh, economic, uh, the way I pose it is that, you know, the underlying problem of low productivity, which I hope what I've said is is the focus of what I'm trying to revive and, and trying to have a discussion about how we can energize, that's obviously an economic phenomenon. But I'm saying the barriers to um, being able to uh, uh, regenerate or re- re- renew or revive uh, productivity um, are primarily in the cultural sphere, that it is cultural factors which are, have created the zombie economy. The zombie economy, in a sense, is, a, is an objective manifestation of, a cultural, uh, uh, of the cultural uh, 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 um, uh, features of our time, the cultural characteristics of our time. And when I talk about culture, I'm talking about culture of fear, culture of risk aversion, culture of low expectations. The culture which is one of saying, you know, we're uncomfortable with change, right? And I think those are the uh, uh, phenomena which have manifest themselves in, in the zombie economy. So that's why I'm saying the problems are underneath them are not financial, because that's just a, 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 something which arose in order to try to keep the economy going, debt and financialization and uh, easy monetary policies and so on. The barriers to overcoming that economic problem, though, are cultural, and therefore the solution has to be one which is engaging in political discussion to actually so that there is an, an alternative way of organizing things. All right, cool. Well, I think there's a lot of questions arising out of that, and we'll come back a little bit to that risk discussion. But very quickly, the, the title of the book, Created Destruction, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of looking at a shakeout in, in industry in some ways. Yeah. I was just wondering whether you considered yourself to be a Thatcherite in this regard, and just to be a little bit, I mean, not, not necessarily in the discussion that you have in the book about state uh, investment uh, and all the rest of it, but in terms of the political perspective of the decimation of the mining industry, for example, in the 1980s, do you think that was a necessary thing to take economics and society forward? What, I, what, I, what I'm arguing about in creative destruction and what didn't happen in the 1980s was that you, it, it, it's, there's, a, it's a, there's a dual aspect to it. It's the creative and the destructive. What you had in the 1980s was a destruction without any creation taking place. What I'm arguing for 
is that today, the barrier to being able to um, uh, have the creative part of it is partly um, uh, uh, institutionalized in that, um, uh, in that zombie economy. And that's what you need to, to, to move out of the way. So when it comes to, say, particular industries, I think it is the wrong thing to do, say, for an industrial policy, to prop up an, a, a, an industry which is not profitable or is not, and is not performing just for the sake of hanging on to jobs for a short period of time. I think it is much more important for an industrial policy, and it's a very different type of industrial policy, to look at what are the barriers to new industries, new sectors being created. And that's always the problem. So when you have industrial policies which are simply like Theresa May's talking about one eye in terms of uh, uh, a bit more tiny, bit more in R&D, a bit more infrastructure perhaps here, a bit more training money here. None of that, which on paper can look quite positive things, is going to have a, an impact because of the barriers to those um, uh, possibilities being, being, being turned into new sectors, new jobs, are too big. So you have to have the, the destructive side. You have to have the, the disruption of what exists in order to create the space for the new to grow. Yeah, so I, I get the title of the book, Creative Destruction. Uh, creative is nice, destruction not so nice. Yeah, so I was just wondering, especially in terms of what you've just argued, what do you think about what Trump is doing at the moment about reinvigorating, as he puts it, the coal and steel industry, trying to you know, put this policy? Because obviously he sounds a little bit more humane than you do at the moment. <laughs> well, I, think he sound, I think he sounds like a lot of things. Um, humane is not generally one of the ones that said. No, I, I, I do not. Uh, I think he... Per, it, Leave aside his liberalism, leave aside his uh, anti-working class politics and everything else that we can see. Even to take at face value his industrial policy, his industrial policy to me falls into, I, I was trying to say, there's basically two types of industrial policy. There's one which preserves what exists at the moment, tries to prop up what exists, and that's the, being the general character of, uh, of industrial policies. And the second one, you know, you know, supports the incumbents and so on. The second one is one, I say, which tries to create the conditions, which can mean getting rid of the barriers to actually allowing new industries to set up. Trump is very much in the, in, in, in the first category. Trying to hang on to coal jobs signs, may sound good in the short term, but by doing so, you're trading away the prospect of better jobs being created in the future for the sake of hanging on to jobs which are going to disappear at some time anyway. So to me, it's, 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 there is no painless way out of this zombie economy. If there was, you know, I hope I would have found it in the course of the research for this. I, there is no painless way out of this. Uh, there is no way that you can transform those steel jobs in, 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 in Wales or those coal jobs in America into productive jobs. No, I don't believe. What you can do is actually see that there's a huge um, uh, a range of potential technologies and problems to be solved with those technologies which are not being exploited. You know, we, we, we can all read about robotics and artificial intelligence and, and uh, genomics and all sorts of areas which are being only barely, barely touched on, which could be used and put to work to create new sectors and new jobs. That's where the focus has got to be, not trying to hang on to the past. Because okay. hang on to the past, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a great life to be hanging on to low productivity, uh, 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 to low productivity, poor paid jobs because they're not going to last anyway. Okay. Get ahead of the game. Okay. You do say there will be pain. Yes. 
I read that. Uh, that is uh, page 159. Um, you also said uh, there's a purifying effect of boom and bust. Purifying. It's quite a strong phrase. Purifying effect of boom and bust. Um, in fact, you, you criticize Gordon Brown, don't we all? Uh, you criticize Gordon Brown for making the end of boom and bust into a goal. Uh, and you say that uncertainty is essential. You praise change. You sanctify churn. You seem to find uh, pleasure in risk. Um, but I just wonder whether you think these are good things in and of themselves. You know, there is a lot to be said in some ways for stability. All this discussion you just had about Trump, there is something to be said for, for certainty, isn't there? Well, I mean, there's I something mean, to be said for stability. Is yeah. Brexit a good thing simply because it seems to have brought uncertainty? Brexit is a good thing because people voted to take back control of their lives. And a byproduct of that is that uh, it does give us the opportunity to do things differently on the economy. It's not the reason, I mean, as, an, as a, somebody writes about the economy, I didn't vote for Brexit because of the economic benefits. I don't think there are any automatic benefits of leaving uh, the European Union. But the fact that people, I mean, what was very pleasing about it, the fact that people uh, last uh, June voted for change, voted for something different, and then voted for a change to the status quo, uh, certainly had a resonance for me in terms of what the arguments I'm making in terms of a, a, a different way of approaching economic policy. So, you know, I, I am arguing the case for change, definitely, and some change, hopefully, will come out of the discussions we have, uh, we have over Brexit. On the question of, you know, am I, uh, have I got no time at all for stability? I mean, you know, of course, you know, we want to have a situation that, you know, we know, all of us know that the job that we had today is the same job that we're going to have tomorrow. Uh, you know, we want stability in our personal lives. We want, you know, and I would even say, you know, in the, in the financial system, the financial sector, you know, if banks are collapsing all the time, it's not a great thing. The argument I'm having is specifically about economic stability being an objective, being a goal. And I think the goal of economic stability by my friend Blair, by, by, by Brown, by you know, Thatcher at the beginning, uh, by the present government, by the, the previous coalition government, to elevate stability, economic stability as the goal, is one which I think is entrenching a static economy. That stability as an economic goal becomes a static economy, <coughs> which then becomes a stagnant economy, which then becomes a zombie economy, which becomes an atrophied economy. That, that, in fact, one of the you know, uh, great things, distinguishing features of the market economy, of capitalism, was that it what did have this inbuilt dynamism to it. And that's what meant that you know, Marx and Engels, when they looked at capitalism in the first half of the 19th century, they were in awe of this, this, this tremendous force of productive change. That, you know, I think somebody calculated, you know, Productivity increased more during the lifetime of Marx than it had ever changed in the previous history of humanity. You know that, that that it was a tremendous thing, and it was based on dynamism, on change, not on being static. And that was what was seen. His criticism, Marx's criticism of, of capitalism, was able wasn't able to consistently develop in that in that way. Now I'm looking at it from today, and I'm saying today capitalism is not developing productivity. And I'm uh, looking at it, what is it which are the barriers to development of productivity? And therefore, I am eulogizing dynamism. I am eulogizing change. I am eulogizing transformation. Because the alternative to that is to, um, uh, to, to, to uh, reinforce the status quo. 
And that status quo is not good enough. It's not good enough for the people today. It's not good enough for us tomorrow. Okay. Uh, just a couple more questions, if you will. Um, since we're talking about uh, the left, uh, Marx, um, you criticise many on the left in the book who want to restrain rather than overthrow capitalism. That's one of your throwaway lines. But then later on, page 265, you say there are still some on the radical left arguing for revolutionary overthrow. This had meaning, but that era is now at an end. My emphasis, bold. That era is now at an end. So it's clearly a call to arms, your book, uh, but is it a challenge to capitalism? Is it a defense of capitalism? Is it a capitulation to capitalism? Well, anti-capitalism has changed from when I grew up in politics. That, I mean, to return to the guy I just mentioned, Marx, yeah? You know, Marx was talking about the problems of capitalism's inability through intrinsic problems within itself to be able to develop productivity, yeah? Uh, And that's what motivated his anti-capitalism, that's what's motivated my anti-capitalism in the the 70s and the 80s, that capitalism itself was the barrier to the development of the productive forces, right? Now, the reason for elevating productivity is because it's ultimately productivity that creates the basis for the development of humanity, the development of the free individual, right, which is what I I put at the the foremost at the the front. So uh, today... Um, revolutionary overthrow of capitalism seems to me to be um, missing the mark as to what it is, what are the barriers which are getting in the way of, uh, of achieving that increase in productivity. Uh, when I was involved in, in revolutionary politics in the 70s and the 80s, there was a semblance of, a, of the, you know, the tail end of a working class as a social force at that stage. That social force no longer exists, and that's why I'm saying that those who make revolutionary uh, pretensions to exciting the working class to overthrow capitalism um, are living in a, in, in a world which has passed. That's what's, that's what's passed. I'm still thinking that it is still possible for us to actually um, uh, uh, overcome the barriers, which are now barriers which are, I'd say, m- more cultural at this particular time than they are economic, um, and it's still possible to do that because this is something which is in our hands to do. When I say our hands, I mean the demos, I mean people's hands to do. Okay. All right. Final question then, leading on from that, um, about how things have changed and what's unrealistic. Mm. So, page 274. You say, uh, we need a capitalism that isn't concerned about the return on investment. Sounds a very strange capitalism. But anyway, you say you need a capitalism that isn't concerned about the return on investment, that a company's interests will be subordinated to the general development of production. I might have read a pre-proof copy from what you're looking at. Do you remember writing this? (laughs) But anyway, and I read it, it it sounded like good old lefty state social nationalization. War economy. Read it again? We uh, in terms of what you get, or tell me what you're getting at. Don't read it. Just tell me what, what you're getting at. We need a capitalism that isn't concerned about the return on investment, right? And you say a company's interests, a company's interests will be, that's a demand, will be subordinated to the general development of production. So I'm saying, is that kind of a war economy you're advocating? Is it? Is it? A, is, are you advocating nationalisation? What? What is it that you're? No, I'm. I, I, I'm. I'm I could say it's out of context, but I need to, to read what that is. But what I'm saying is that, is that the private sector has got a role to play 
but I do not see the private sector as being able to uh, transform the economy. Right? I don't think them being the leading the agency for change. Right? I think the criterion of profitability is still um, uh, too narrow to be able to allow them to be able to, to, to play the leading, leading role. So what is the agency for change? What is the agency for getting us out of this uh, productivity rut, for getting us out of this zombie economy? Uh, and I, and so I'm not arguing for them to be nationalized. I'm arguing that the lead has to come from people and through an agency or through an, a vehicle. That's and the, the only vehicle is the state, right? So I see it as something happening in tandem, really. Um, uh, uh, and so it's, it's not as if the state will be able to generate all those new jobs and generate all those new sectors and those industries. That's going to be for the market sector to do. But the state has to take the initiative to clearing away the barriers which are uh, stopping companies doing that at the moment. That, ladies and gentlemen, oh my God, uh, that's uh, my lot. So yes, we will come to you. Um, are you okay? You got a yeah. pen and paper? I have. Uh, if we take uh, two or three questions at a time, if that's all right, then Phil can ignore any he doesn't like uh, or doesn't know the answer to. We have a roving microphone. Can I take uh, this lady here and this gentleman in the front? Uh, thanks. Um, that's for you. Just um, to ask you a question about. Brexit, because um, one of the things that I thought was quite exciting about Brexit um, was that many people, despite all of loads of people telling them that everything was going to be terrible, the economy would collapse the day after Brexit, it was all horrible, 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 that loads of people in the world in particular um, voted Brexit, they voted to leave, and they voted to leave despite the fact that everyone told them that was going to wreck their economic future. And I was just um, reflecting on that as you were speaking in terms of um, the, the requirement, really, that people may have to lose out or, and that people can make choices. And it seems that that was a choice that kind of goes along quite well um, and shows a willingness, uh, in a sense, to see something very to seize opportunity, that mm -hmm. risk and opportunity go together uh, in some ways, and opportunity is a good thing. So I was wondering um, what you thought about that. And then secondly, on the state, your last point, um, I think I, I'm quite interested, or I've been trying to work out, but uh, really what seems to have happened to me is that economic policy in terms of the state has become social policy. And so you think about things like the minimum wage and various, you know, even off what or whatever, or loads and loads of aspects of kind of things that seem, on the one hand, they seem to be economic, perhaps. On the other hand, do seem to be uh, social policy, even regeneration funds, regenerating cities, you know, a lot of it. It's, it's, I'm just a bit concerned about relying on the state, because what, what is the state going to do there? They, they want stability. Phil, th thank you very much for the presentation. I uh, haven't read the book, but uh, now that I heard you speak, I'm going eagerly to um, uh, read the book. Um, I have a question which is um, about this idea of bringing the conversation to the demos mm -hmm. in order to create change. Mm -hmm. Because uh, what we read from the demos is that it is aging, and people who are aging are have one thing in common, is that they, they are fearful of change. They don't want change. 
people who were employed in steel industry and coal mining industry are not going overnight to become um, AI specialists, coders, or genetic biologists, and, and mm -hmm. so on. Um, they may work for Uber, but that is precisely what people resent. They don't want the Uberization of the economy. So yes, you could have this new dynamism, provided you don't bring the conversation to the demos, and that you do it without the demos, against the demos. Sorry, um, thank you. Um, just to say um, thank you all for writing the book that non economists can understand. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I read the first three chapters, and then skipped to the, to the last one, because I was really interested in the change aspect. Um, the one thing that um, I think, to follow what gentleman says before, uh, is, is, is agency. So we identify and we say, well, who, who is the agency? Because before, when we had, when we talked about revolutionary politics for the working class, a really simple question to yourself is, is who, who's going to lead this change? Thanks, thanks, thanks. Okay, we'll keep it there. I'll come back in a second. Phil, do you want to have a go? People, right. And my answer to you, Christian, is I have a lot more faith that people can actually have a discussion about what is, what is best for the future. And I think what Sally said is that here we have a clear, blinding example of it, that people were told that with Brexit it was going to be economic calamity and uh, worry. It was going to be, you know, whatever, everything was going to go wrong. The sky was going to fall in. We were going to have, you know, 500,000 people on the dole straight away, recession forever and so on, all those things. But people <coughs> took all that on board, thought a lot of it was stupid as being said, but was prepared to accept that there might be some economic downside because other things were more important. Because the arguments, the, the, the arguments of taking control, the arguments about sovereignty, the arguments about, about, uh, having, uh, about, about yeah, having control and taking it back from things being imposed upon us was something which motivated people to make a decision even if it meant disruption in the short term. So I think your argument I think is, is a very anti-democratic one because it's basically saying you cannot trust the people to have a discussion about what is best for the future of society. Prior to last year, there would be an argument that we would have to say, well, I think I have faith in people that we can do that. Now I've got an example that people said, we vote for change. You know, that was not just a vote to get out of the EU, it was a vote for doing things differently and upset to the status quo. Now that hasn't uh, meant that, that uh, people are discussing in, uh, around the country about the need for economic renewal, far from it. Uh, you know, people are still uh, worried and unsure and uh, wary about change. But it means that there's a susceptibility and openness has been, has, been, has been established. And that's something which I hope, not just myself but others, can actually have those broader public conversations with people and actually see that the continuation of the status quo is going to be very, very damaging or is already damaging. We're already seeing not just um, uh, stagnant living standards for the last 10 years, we're seeing sections of society moving backwards. Now, I didn't, when I started writing the book, I wasn't sure that was going to happen, but actually you can see things moving backwards. You know, the average wage of the self-employed is less now than it was 20 years ago. The average wage of people in this country is, you know, is what, 6, 7 percent below what it was in 2008. You know, one of the facts which uh, startled me when I read the book, you know, that, the, that, that American production workers are still paid less per hour than they were in 1973, when man was last, you know, just after he went to the moon, right? That is, is not going, that's stagnant and in some ways going backwards. And that's the sort of discussion which we need to have with people to actually say that we can do better than this, that we don't have to put up with this, uh, th th this rut. And I think people are open to those discussions, Christian. I think it's 
far from being going behind the backs or around them, they are the force to answer the question. You can't do it. An elite is not uh, an alternative. Elite is not going to do it. And that, if I can conclude, and I mean I, at this point about is the state the right agency for it? I mean that caused a lot of difficulty me trying to work this out because clearly the state as it is. I have no trust in whatsoever. The elite as it is, the technocratic elite as it is, I have no trust in, uh, in whatsoever. But we need some vehicle, something like a state, a collective body is needed. And that happens to be, the only one we've got at the moment is called the state. But it's not going to do it through the whim of the, uh, some, some, some new variant of the sort of elite that, there's, uh, that exists at the moment. It can only come from pressure. I mean, that, uh, that's why I was so you know, frustrated with the budget, right? Because uh, the budget three weeks ago or whatever was the first opportunity which the May and Hammond team had actually to put into practice the rhetoric, which we've heard so much from them since the Brexit vote, that they said, yes, we hear the Brexit vote. The Brexit vote was a vote for change, for doing things differently. We know the economic recovery hasn't been good for people. We know we've got to do something about productivity. We know that's central. All, these, all that rhetoric was there. And this was the first chance they had to actually put some money, real money, behind that. And they pulled back. You know, it just shows how difficult it is for an elite which has been, or a leadership which has been schooled in the whole technocratic, pro-stability, anti-change ways to actually turn their rhetoric into something else. Now, I'm not writing them off forever, probably writing them off, but I'm not writing off the elite forever, but it has to be an up, a, a from the bottom change. It has to be people voting and demanding and discussing that. Sorry. See, he's angry now. Uh, right, lots of hands. I've seen everybody. I'll, we will get to you. Uh, come take this gentleman at the front. Then, yeah, this gentleman as well. Thanks a lot. Uh, I, I, I think I understand the main point that uh, zombiness is really policy driven. Mm -hmm. um, are there any counterfactuals to that? So, for example, we have China, which is really elitist, statist capitalism. Um, they're experiencing something quite different. They don't have the kind of erosion of wages. What do we make of that? How do they measure productivity? And what the heck is productivity anyway? Uh, just a quick one. In terms of a potential vehicle, what do you think of Andrew Hardane's uh, suggestion last month at the LSE speech uh, that there's a sandboxing for firms going forward as an attempt to push up productivity in the, obviously, the very highly regulated environment we operate in today? Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about the idea that the gig economy, sorry, the idea of the gig economy or the uberization of the mm -hmm. economy is not necessarily counterposed to the zombie economy, but it's a symptom of it in that in a low productivity economy, it's, uh, it's an outlet where people are sweating existing assets rather than any sort of new product value-adding growth is coming from. Sorry, the Institute of my, uh, Directors did a big survey of companies across the country after the industrial strategy was published earlier this year. Uh, what they did, uh, didn't like about it was, um, what, what, can you not hear me? If you hold it by your mouth, it helps. But what, the, what, um, what the Institute of Directors said about the government's industrial strategy was they, they didn't like the idea that the government should prop up failing industries, fair enough. Um, mm -hmm. But what, um, what they said the government should be doing more of is investing in skills, and 95% of people that responded to their survey said that. And time and time again, it seems like um, the rhetoric is going back to your friend Tony Blair. It's around education, education, education um, uh, uh, to, to revitalise the economy. So we need to reskill people in the uh, kind of 21st century um, skills. 
what's your take on that? I mean, do, do, does training and skills play a lead role in revitalizing the economy and generating creative destruction? Thanks. That's it this round. We'll, we'll come back out again. Don't worry. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to. Uh, um, uh, I should answer what productivity is. I suppose that's been baffling everybody for the last <laughs> hour. Productivity is is the amount that we can produce in a given time, right? So generally, it's measured as you know GDP per per hour or something like that. So basically, it's our ability to be able to produce more for the same effort. That's what's about. And generally, it comes about through technological change through new technology helping us. So instead of doing things with our hands, we've got machines or uh, IT or computers to help us to do things more efficiently. So that's what, that's what productivity uh, represents. And productivity is the source then of the ability to pay higher wages and to create more surplus to be able to invest more in, in the future. So it's, it, it underpins our, our, our living standards. Um, when you say in terms of counterfactuals, I mean, the book doesn't deal with China, except to the extent to which it, China has been a uh, turned out to be a mechanism by which the West, including Britain and America, have been one of the one of the devices they've used to be able to prop themselves up. Um, because far from China being a the reason for joblessness or the reason for you know jobs disappearing and so on, the reason for you know hardship in the West, actually China has been sending a huge amount of capital. Uh, to um, undermine, underpin rather, the, uh, uh, the, the, the debt expansion which there has been in the West. I think one study which I quote in the book says something like half of the new uh, borrowing by non-financial sectors, that's by governments, by businesses, by people since the 1980s, has been financed by capital inflows from China and, and other places. So the reality is the world is divided. There is value being created in places like China, which has a very different model, as you say. I'm focusing here on the problems within the mature, advanced industrial countries. Um, uh, and, and, and ironically, um, and what I argue in the book is that China could have been, actually, or the, the rise of China, the rise of East Asia, could have been an opportunity for the West to reorganize itself. Could, it could have said, in the, in, it could have been the case in the 1990s, here we have the world opening up, here we have all this new production going on, this is an opportunity for us to reorganize ourselves in the West, in the mature part of the world, and meet the needs of that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, billions more people coming into the world market. Instead, it was, this is a problem, but we'll take your money and we'll take your cheap goods because that'll help us keep going. You know, cheap goods help as well because it means when wages aren't going up so much, if we've got all the cheap goods in the, in the shops from China and from other places, that allows us to uh, stabilize our living standards you know, uh, better than it would be if we were just relying on, on production within the West. So China, China became a prop um, rather than an opportunity to, to, reorganize, uh, to reorganize the West. Um, on Andy Haldane's speech, I, mean, it was, it, I always like his speeches. Generally, he's got good insight and in things. Andy Haldane is the, is the chief economist of the Bank uh, of the Bank of England, and I mean, I think I think that speech was playing a certain role because what he was—it was called productivity puzzles, the one at the LSE. What the speech was about was really about trying to shift responsibility off off the Bank of England for, for low productivity, because actually it was a response to some of the arguments I've been making in terms of the role of easy monetary policies. Because there is an argument, not just put forward by me, but others are saying that one of the um, uh, policies, a state policy through an independent central bank, which is what has 
sustain so many zombie businesses is the very low interest rates uh, and the amount of liquidity that there is. So it means if you've got debt, you're not paying an awful lot on it, right? and, and therefore that allows these businesses to keep going. And so there are, there are people beyond me who are saying well, that's one of the sources of the problem of this divided performance levels and so on. And his argument was to say, uh, no, don't blame us. Uh, you know, we're not to blame at the Bank of England because actually the productivity problem goes back earlier and there may be other reasons like uh, poor management was the one he was focusing on. You know, perhaps we could do a little bit of mentoring and soapboxing and stuff and help, help our managers because their surveys show that British management is amongst the worst in the industrial world and all those sort of things. Um, I think that's sort of, you know, sticking plaster sort, sort of thing because what it doesn't deal with is the question as to, you know, where the new jobs uh, come from and where, where we create those new jobs. So he is right in one respect of saying that actually the policies didn't start with quantitative easing and what the Bank of England did and what the Fed did after 2008-9. Those policies, those supportive policies have been going on for a lot longer. Um, but I think in, in trying to sort of shift shift the blame there, I think he, or, or shift responsibility away from himself, I think he deflected from the bigger picture. There's really, if I could say, I mean, there's a, there was a really good example he gave, which I think is indicative of, of some of the problems that we have, because what he said was that you can run a model, Andy Alday, and you can run a model and say that even if we had put interest rates up to 4% or something, he says, it would have caused one and a half million jobs to go, um, but productivity would probably be a one or 2% higher. So he says, you know, that's a trade-off, and that's a trade-off between uh, losing one and a half million jobs or um, uh, um, uh, productivity being two percent higher. Now, I, I'm not saying anything about that particular model and the veracity of that model or whatever, but posing things in those ways, I think, does get us to think: well, 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 actually, is one and a half million jobs sounds terrible, horrendous, but how many jobs are lost? Even in this zombie economy of ours, how many jobs are lost every year in Britain? How many jobs are destroyed in companies closing and companies contracting in a normal year? 5.7. Not quite that high, but it's, it's in that ballpark. Every year is about three and a half million jobs go. Three and a half to four million jobs go. So about one out of eight jobs every year is destroyed anyway. So. If you then compare and look at, so the, the, the reason why we don't see that is because there are also roughly three and a half million new jobs created. The problem is, a lot of the jobs that have been created over the last 10 years, to point to your question, is that they're pretty low quality, poorly paid, low productivity jobs, the, the gig economy type jobs. So the jobs, that, there's, there's this turnover going on all the time. So when people give you a number, one and a half million, God, that size is completely destructive, you know, completely destroying things. Or, uh, you know, how could you ever countenance that, uh, taking that decision? What it misses the point is that the problem is not never losing jobs. The problem is never, you know, deindustrialization of the coal industry, the steel industry. The problem is never that. The problem has always been re the failure of reindustrialization to happen, the failure of new jobs to be created. Or, or rather, I say the failure of new decent jobs to be created, because there will be new jobs created. They're just crap jobs at the moment that people are, are having to take. Um, that's why everyone says, well, you know, God, it's great, unemployment doesn't rise much. You have to look at the quality of the jobs, and the problem is that in a zombie economy, it is that sort of low-paid, low-productivity uh, jobs which are sorts of, sorts of created. So you should have taken, so Andy Aldane should have taken the, the bullet on that and actually recognize that, yes, and I'd argue, now interest rates should be increased. 
you know, rapidly, um, uh, uh, you know, gradually, yes, give people time to adjust. But interest rates should be increased because that's the one of the things, uh, one of the state policies which is helping to sustain the zombie economy, which is blocking the possibility of new decent jobs being created. Right. Your productivity is going to have to improve on these analysis. Thank you. Uh, we'll take the gentleman back, and there's a guy in the corner who will be waiting, and the lady in the front. My question is a simple one. In terms of what to do next, um, to understand about you know, the destructive part, and then uh, I'm interested about the creative part. So, it's a simple question. So, you know, some people describe the notion of picking winners yep. to say that there are certain sectors, industries that we need to go for. Do you subscribe to that? You know, are you of the view that the states uh, should be arguing for infrastructure winners in certain areas like biotech and the rest of it? You know, otherwise, how does, it, how does it work itself out you know, culturally as well as economically? Uh, you can say we need to clear out very zombie uh, businesses and banks. Uh, where, where would be your priority to clear that? Which, which industries would you like to see go first? Just to say, it's fascinating to see a major work on the economics, especially when it seems so much of what we, we've said, so much of what I've read seems to be about um, culture. Doesn't it seem somehow, though, I, I, does it seem somehow a difficulty that we're asking for very robust individuals and we're asking for actually some very robust capitalists? Uh, is this a capital? I mean, we talk of the left talking about time that's passed. Mm. Are we talking about maybe capitalists who are no longer there? We still have the, the capitalist class there, culturally. Um, we, you know, we have an elite that believes in stability, we have a capitalist class that believes in stability. Uh, you know, um, this is still very much a, a cultural battle still to be had. We're, we're still going to have to convince people. It's not impossible, obviously, by Brexit, by the example of Brexit, but we have to convince people to take that imaginative leap. Um, and that's that's a paradox, um, but it, yeah, I'd like to have your thoughts on it. Yeah, thanks very much. And the uh, lady in the front. Um, culturally, a lot of the discussion on the economy actually takes the form of a kind of overhyped optimism. It's not all doom and gloom or low horizon. I mean, most of the discussions I go to the, on the economy are full of you know revolutions in biosciences, robots robotics taking over everywhere, artificial intelligence. And it all sounds very exciting. So in some ways there seems to be a, a, a subjective desire to have an imagination about leaving the old industries behind. That seems to be slightly at odds with like, what you're describing as reality. But why can't they make that happen? Or you know, why can't they see that there are certain barriers to that happening? Because one of my fears is that I actually end up trying to puncture some of that by saying, yes, but there's hardly anything happening in robotics. And it's not, you know, I always find I sound like I'm the one who's trying to say it's not as good as you're making it sound as though it is. And then I was trying to describe what was in your book the other day, and also in the Institute of Ideas, Economy Forum's submission to industrial policy. And somebody very excitedly said, oh, I completely agree with you, Claire. Must uh, uh, read Jeremy Corbyn's policy on renationalising the railways. <laughs> so you know there is a kind of danger that actually, or, or is that how, how do you make? Uh, well, obviously you've got a book to do this, then you're not to do your book any credit. But what I'm saying is that there's a kind of state intervention versus the kind of excitement of the new gamers and all the new tech kids. Sometimes that you'd go for the new tech kids every time, and it sounds like they'd have much better chance with the market. 
and kind of hoping that an intervention on the industrial policy of Theresa May uh, would actually make any impact? Um, well, I suppose that a common theme of, of that round is, is the... Uh, the picking winners or the naming the losers or whatever, and uh, and you know how does the state interact with the private sector? I think. The, I mean, I, I, the the paradox you've raised at the back is is a genuine one. I don't think. Well, I know they're not all these um, uh, uh, entrepreneurial capitalists there who are you know gung ho for risk taking and really want to want to go out there and, and and transform the world and and somehow something which they can't quite get to grips with is holding them back. I think they are as much captured by these cultural forces I've been describing as the elite are. Yeah, so, the, so the business elite and the, uh, uh, and the political elite and the cultural elite you know, share those values, share those anxieties about the future, share those, those uh, discomfort with, with the idea of upsetting the status quo. That, that is true. Uh, you know, as I said earlier in my, in my opening comment, you know, if you look even at those leading companies, the leading profitable 1%, they're hardly out there year after year doing these you know breakthrough technologies you know what was the big what was the big you know t technology launch of last week you know the samsung s8 you know and the 8 you know tells you and it, it's incremental and i think the big selling point of that apart from an infinity screen which i think some people got very excited about is the fact that it was properly tested and probably won't catch fire this time. You know. But it is an indication, and we're waiting for the iPhone 8, you know, number 8 in, a, in, a, in everything. Else. So even the, the pioneering profitable and, and the far-sighted ones are basically doing incremental marginal uh, innovation. Now that doesn't say, and I've got great faith, that there are a lot of people who want to do new things. And all these, all these technologies, to go back to, the, to, to, to your point as well, Lauren, all these potentials I'm very excited about. All these, the nanotechnologies and the biotech and the, the machine learning and all those things that people are getting excited about, they've got good reason to get excited about. The problem is that we can be, you know, some people have been excited about them for the last 20 years. You know, I remember, you know, when the dot-com bubble burst and everyone said biotech is on its way, you know, it'll be here in the next couple of years. Biotech is the next big thing. This was in, in 2000. You know, we're still waiting. Now, Obviously, people in that sense get frustrated about it. I'm saying the way to help create the conditions for that is all we can do. It's not a question of naming which particular parts of that big, 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 big range of from biotech to nanotech to, to machine learning and, and advanced robotics and all that. I mean, it's all there. We can see that. I mean, I think more interesting is to recognize and to be, and to be uh, humble enough to know there are a lot of things we can't name today which are going to be the things that should be providing our jobs the next 30, 40 years, you know, just so we can never anticipate those new sectors um, uh, uh, which will come on the basis of combining and taking forward the sectors which we can see but aren't, being, aren't realized at the moment. So my argument is rather than picking particular one of those or rather identifying which ones to get the chop, is, and rather than you know, just hoping that individual capitalists will, will pick up the mantle, is that the state role is to do, well, three things. I call it the three S's, right? That, that it should, firstly, and these, these are not sort of sequential. These are things that happen to coexist. They have to stop doing the propping up, right? Because that is the thing which is consolidating and entrenching this zombie economy. And that's what's stopping the movement of resources into the new things, right? So that's 
Claire has kindly taught, well, not, uh, mentioned the, uh, the, 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 the submission which the Institute of Ideas Economy Forum has made, which I've written a part of, to the Industrial Strategy Green Paper. And that's the focus of what I'm saying. Look at what are the barriers in the way of new industry. Stop what is getting in the way should be a key component of that. Secondly, you need to start not necessarily identifying and giving money to particular winners, um, but to do two things, what they should start doing, the, the, the S, the second thing the state should do, is to commit a lot more resources to the future. Now, that's a very bland thing, but it means, I argue, uh, uh, quadrupling the amount of money going into research and development. The moment the state commits something like 0.5%, right, you know, a, a pittance, really, on, of GDP on, on research and development, they've added another, we're going to get another couple of billion or something, which is getting on for just over another 0.1%. You know, we need something like 2% of GDP committed to research and development because that's been sorely lacking for the last 30 years. It's been tailing down, and that doesn't create industries tomorrow, but it creates this next generation of technologies which can provide the foundation, the next gen generation of science and technologies that can provide the, 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 the possibilities for commercial commercialization after that. So it needs to do that. And it needs also, yes, to provide funding, venture capital type funding. You know, that things will fail. And that's something that the government doesn't like to do. It will have to give money to businesses, both existing businesses and new ops. I don't eulogize startups as being the, the only thing. It can be existing businesses who've got good ideas, good ventures, which they want to actually start to commercialize some of these technologies that people are so excited about. They can do that at the same time. And in doing that, um, uh, uh, they have to recognize that, you know, 90 out of 100 of those, or 99 out of 100 of those, will probably fail. But that sort of venture capital style of funding is something which would be provided to the private sector to do. Now, it's a mix between them as to whether people, but as Claire says, there are people that she meets, there's other people that meet who will want to take up those opportunities. But the fundamental block that the book focuses on is this manifestation, this objective block of the, uh, uh, of the, zombie, of the zombie economy getting in the way. Cool. We've probably got two more rounds out. So can I come to this side? There's a little patch, a patch of people. Is that a collective noun? A uh, little group, gentlemen there. Yeah. Hello. I would just be interested in the general synopsis of the current situation. I mean, uh, it's obviously clear that we as a people have to stand up. I mean, uh, given the fact is we've got a, a non-elected government. We've got this situation with Brexit now. Brexit now obviously having to be sorted in the a short period of time, um, the government has just granted itself these unprecedented powers by the Great Repeal Bill. They're talking about trade deals that uh, are not in, in the public uh, eye, that are completely discussed uh, behind closed doors. 95% of the business people, no sh other shareholders of, the, of the, our uh, society, and um, I think people don't understand what the, you know, what the impact of these so-called free trade deals are. Um, for example, CETA, you might know that the comprehensive and economic trade agreement with Canada that has been agreed by the European Parliament in uh, mid-February, it's not in the, you know, it's not discussed in the, in the public eye because, you know, with the media landscape, uh, two billionaires owning more than 50% of the media in this country, it's just not a topic. The BBC completely uh, keeps quiet about it. Uh, I think it's pretty desperate in, in my view. We as a public, we can speak up, but it's the same with Brexit. People have been completely misinformed. There was fear mongering from both sides. You know, 
Now we're probably out of the single market, 350 million pounds and the, the NHS will not be paid and all these things. It's, yeah, just interested in it. And one final thing I think it has to be said, what the road is of lobbyism, you know. You talk about uh, the government just want to provide stability, but you know, what role do, do these uh, big companies play? I mean, they, they influence politicians big time. This is not necessarily to our benefit because it's the small and medium-sized businesses who create jobs. It's All right. the big guys. All right, thank you very much. Uh, there's a gentleman behind you, yes. Yes, uh, my, my question is about the transition and, and to what extent it should be managed. So yeah. You talked about the state of blocking the um, zombifying the economy or whatever. Um, what role, if any, does the state play in managing the transition? Is it, is it about retraining or what, what happens? Yeah. Can you bring it forward to the lady, just a couple of seats forward? The lady, female. Yeah. <laughs> there. So, yeah. I agree with you said about um, the three S policies, um, but that has. That don't you think that has to be backed by social policies? Because people are not afraid of change. I think they're afraid of um, risk. You know, you're you work in an industry and you lose your job. You're not afraid if you, you're told that it can be trained. Not you know, not lose your house for that. If you cannot retrain because you know, if you have a degree. To go to university again unless you pay again £9,500 a year. Um, it's quite desperate, isn't it? That's why I think people are afraid of change because of the risk that it moves. Thank you. And the gentleman behind. Uh, hello, Phil. Uh, would you agree with me that productivity is a very poor measure? That's almost meaningless, meaningless measure at a gross level because you can't distinguish between disguised employment and full employment. We're talking about the Uber example, so Uber's a fantastically productively, productively rich organisation, and yet 200,000 companies that work for it are obviously most probably negatively productivity going on there. Um, so, so, yes, that's my question really. Productivity, and I know this is a similar to the economist at the moment, but it's actually pretty, pretty, <coughs> pretty meaningless at that gross level. Okay, thanks. Uh, can you see the hands who want to? Say something. Uh, uh, can I just say one more from this gentleman here? And then, then with Phil, and we'll go back out to the final round. Thank you. Um, I think the, one of the key things in your book, which really um, I learned a lot from, and it made me rethink quite a lot of things that I've been trying to on around innovation, is the absence of creative destruction as being an objective barrier to innovation. Because I, I think that's the, the point that you're really driving at, that it's not just about subjectivity. And I, I know we have, we've always stressed the human volition, you know, ambition, um, having, you know, being willing to take risks, or et cetera, et cetera, the culture of low expectations being a barrier to innovating and all that. But in fact, you seem to be saying something slightly different uh, well, not now, but I think yeah, the, the balance is slightly shifted because in the absence of creative destruction, there is an objective removal of the need to, to The kind of problem-solving space becomes that much narrower. Precisely as you say, where things are bumping along, incremental innovation becomes the order of the day because that's, that's just natural business. It's got nothing to do with 
you know, cultural, human volition or agency or whatever. That's just what you have to do to stay in business. And so therefore, when you talk about the cultural dimension of all this, the, getting the balance right now between human volition, between the cultural problems um, and aspirations and all of that, mm. and the objective basis from which we can materially affect that need for, for change or innovation. You know, it seems to me that there's perhaps the barrier is much greater than you, you, you're making out. Okay. Well, uh, just to, to say on that, and then I'll go on to my main point, I'll be on. People may have, may have recognized I didn't get to my third S earlier. I don't know if you realize that. Good, because uh, that helps answer the questions. Uh, what, I may be underestimating the barrier. I think it's a huge barrier. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not saying this is easy at all. But I think the way you've posed it is, is, is right, that, that, that you know, the objective barriers of the crisis of profitability you know, is, is still there. And I explained in the book, you know, it's, it, it's explained how the, the boom ended and we got into the depression in the, in the 1970s. But that those sort of objective problems um, have been overtaken by, in a sense, more subjective ones. Or rather, the form that those objective problems take um, have been uh, manifest in uh, various sort of cultural and social um, uh, 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 restraints. And I think if there is a, you know, a step forward in the book, it's, it's high. I've teased out the way in which those cultural barriers, those cultural constraints which dominate and hold back not just the development of productivity, but hold back society in general, have been institutionalized or, or man manifest within a material form. And that material form arises from the way that the political elite have absorbed this culture of constraint and culture of fear and culture of you know, low expectations and, and the risk aversion and so on. And that is what's transformed into policies which are elevating stability over, over growth. And that objective manifestation is this, 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 this uh, truncated, uh, 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 atrophied economy. Uh, and so that's why I think that, that allows us, that to me gives a focus for then saying, how do we take up all those cultural problems, all those cultural barriers, all those cultural restraints and constraints? And, and, and giving an economic focus to it around, uh, uh, around the zombie economy is it's a, it's, a, it's a device in a sense. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a means of turning that political struggle into something which, it, which is tangible. Now, people are right in saying that making that argument is obviously upsetting because it does, it is an argument, basically it's winning the argument for change is what I'm saying. And winning the argument of change in the economic sphere has consequences for each and every one of us. You're very right in that, which is why my third S is alongside stopping propping up this uh, uh, torpid economy, uh, starting investing real resources into the future, whether it's R&D or it's venture capital type funding and so on. The third S is sponsoring the transition period. And they, again, co go together. It's not a chronological thing that you do one and then the other. Because, and it relates to the question I was asked earlier about skills, you know, skills are a great thing. and, and Reskilling people will be part of that sponsoring people through the change because the change will mean, and I'm not necessarily naming the names of the industries, but it will mean a lot of redundancies in those areas which are not that productive um, and therefore people will lose their jobs. Uh, and this isn't saying, here, have some money and a little bit of you know, 
few weeks at the, your local tech college, you know, to sort of bide you over a bit. It's not an alternative to getting good, well-paid employment. It's saying people will need help and a bit of vision and a bit of uh, a sense of a sense of objective and goal of where they're going in order to take up those new jobs. But it depends on those new jobs being there. So I'm cynical about skills training as a sub, as an as a as a panacea because there's no point training people for jobs which aren't there. And I don't know what the jobs are going to be. Uh, necessarily, you know, you can talk about the rough sectors and so on, which will probably provide employment over the next 5, 10, 15 years if we can unblock things. Um, and then it'll be up to the employers in those areas to skill people up for those, uh, for those new jobs. But the state should take responsibility financially for helping people with assistance, helping people with job search, helping people with picking up with, with those new skills, helping people move if they need to very much as a transition, not as a welfare handout, this is an alternative to jobs, but as a means to take up the, those new jobs. And that sponsorship clearly is, is uh, a vital part of, the, uh, of our collective responsibility. People deserve, you know, we all deserve that, because we all deserve that help to take us from the you know, poor paid, but still you know, money in our, money in our uh, pay packet jobs to those which have got more of a future as well as being better paid. Just on the productivity thing, I, I think productivity is not a, a, a false concept. I think GDP is a false concept, and that's a different thing. I think, I think the measure which we have, gross domestic product, which is the way you measure productivity, GDP per hour or GDP per person, the GDP side of it, you know, there's lots of problems with it, for sure. Um, and there's been various ways of, of tweaking it and adding this and then taking stuff out, all of which have you know, probably made things a little bit worse, or probably rather, rather than helped. But it is a single measure. To me, I take that view. Gross domestic product is not a fair view of you know, our welfare. It's not a fair view of, of our living standards. You know, it, it excludes you know, loads of things like you know, our, what we, our leisure time and what we do in our leisure time and what we do in our domestic work and all sorts of things. But it is a single figure which allows you to compare period to period. And in my view, uh, therefore, it's the best we've got to indicate that we've got a problem. So when GDP per hour or GDP per worker, you know, the gross domestic product per effort of a person is flat, that to me is indicative of a problem, right? Now, it may be a little bit up, a little bit down, whatever, but that's indicative of it. Productivity is essential. Right? Productivity, the development of the productive forces, is the basis of our freedom. It's the basis of being able to develop our freedom. It's being able to be able to have a decent life. Right? Not only does it you know, produce the things that we eat and our, our homes and our clothes and our, uh, you know, what, what we do in our, in our leisure time and so on, but it provides the means for creating a better society, infrastructure, uh, you know, whatever. So productivity. No, I'm saying the measure is an artificial measure. I accept that. But the concept of productivity, being able to produce more in the same time, is vital. Because if that isn't moving forward, humanity is stagnant. Got yeah. that. Right. Yeah, no chatting. Uh, right, final round, hands please. Uh, Phil, I'm really excited about the prospects of a national conversation about economic policy from then on. Is that said tongue-in-cheek? Genuinely not. One of the barriers to, to making that happen, uh, and not that I kind of agree with the, the points that were made about misrepresentation during the, um, uh, during the referendum campaign, but uh, in the kind of spirit of that, is the um, there's obviously a discussion about global Britain, so we're going to 
mm-hmm. really trade our way uh, out of the out of the problem, out of our problems. Um, and um, I, I imagine along the lines that by opening up opening ourselves up to uh, market pressure on a global scale, that that will have some kind of restructuring <coughs> impact in its own in its own right. But it seems that it's based upon um, you know again it seems to be an agenda of change, but uh, have very little basis in in reality. So I think Leo Fox said today that from that standpoint, we're firing on all cylinders. And obviously, what we understand from what, what we can understand from what you're saying is that actually we're not we're not really firing on any uh, on any cylinders. Do we have actually anything to trade that we're producing you know, sufficiently productively enough uh, to to uh, to be competitive? Thank you. Just gentleman behind. Uh, Philip, I understood you correctly. Your thesis is about the advanced Western economies. Yes. Um, is there anything to learn uh, from distinctions between those economies? So is it, is it that what you're describing is pretty much the case across the board, or is there anything given like the statistics about uh, productivity in Germany, France, and the US being 30% higher than it is in the UK? Is there anything to learn from those sorts of comparisons? Or is it basically the case that what, what you're saying is pretty much uh, the case in all these countries? Okay. We're going to take uh, quite a few, a few hands, but short questions, please. The, the two gentlemen together there. Yeah, I mean, it was alluded to over there about SMEs and the importance of SMEs mm. contributing. Um, what was interesting about Haldane, I thought, was actually he was politely trying to say the thing you can't say in the economic debate is actually SMEs in the UK aren't necessarily that great. Actually, he was talking about family run. Gentlemen, next to you. Yeah, I guess it's not slightly related to that, so I won't labour it. Um, to what extent do you think that the condition of the things you're describing is uh, a slightly sort of traditional left position, which is that we need much greater compensation with capital? So, like, uh, wages remain stagnant because workers aren't organised, or that uh, companies aren't investing properly because there's very little uh, demand because people, there's massive inequality. So, to what extent do you think, do you buy that sort of more traditional left position that what we need is a much greater confrontation with capital in order for the sort of greater destruction you'd like to come about? Very good. Just pass across the end of your row. Well, I agree with the logic of your argument. Um, could you just say a little bit about how the service economy fits into this? Because obviously a large proportion of the UK economy is based in service industries. Thanks. I'm quite enjoying the current period for all of the surprises, the political surprises. Because I can't, it's a new idea for me, this getting my head around the biggest change for innovation being the state. You know, somebody who's kind of opened a free school recently and is a lobbyist, the state and the people who work within it seem to be the most intransigent and obstructive and are the barrier to so many 
layers of innovation. So that's really interesting. And I wonder whether, you know, there's been such a kind of a retreat into the public data, uh, state sector, that the that's completely anti-democratic at the minute. That's where I see they're kind of, they're situated. And the demos is the pro-change, let's go for it, let's kind of push back. You know, the, how do you see that kind of conflict playing out? You know, the state being the vehicle of change, I just think that's so interesting. Okay, I'm going to have to stop. You've got five minutes. Oh, right, okay. Um, I think one, uh, just on this point of SMEs and large corporates and stuff, one point I, I, I haven't stressed in the last hour or so, but which is in the book, is that I'm not uh, saying it's only the weak economies which are being propped up, but it's the big economies too. So that I describe this, what I call a corporate dependency. So even the most dynamic parts of the economy, uh, you know, the, 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 or what are seen as the most dynamic parts, the IT sector, you know, pharmaceuticals, aerospace, um, uh, those sort of sectors which are, you know, seem to be, you know, coping very well on their own, if you actually look underneath, they are um, very much state dependent, right, both in terms of where their revenues come from, in terms of uh, funding for their own, you know, research areas, they've got grants, they've got, you know, uh, <coughs> Uh, 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 the guy who's, Gavin's not here, is he? Couldn't make it. But Mike and, uh, and, and Gavin and I are looking at a book which Gavin is, uh, Gavin Pointer, who helped a lot on mine, as did Mike, thank you. Um, Gavin's uh, writing a book on the conservator state at the moment, which develops some of these themes to show how even something like the financial services sector, which you know may have problems in terms of how productive it is, but if you look at the Canary Wharf area, you know, and you look at uh, is this a, 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 an example of free market capitalism, financial capitalism, uh, you know, succeeding, that it only existed on the basis of a huge amount of state funding going in to support both the infrastructure in that area, the building of the infrastructure, and you know, uh, helping out whenever the businesses went bust and so on, that the Canary Wharf and the financial services there would not have existed if it hadn't been for that huge subsidy which went in from, went from the government. And you, could, you, can, you can dissect that, and I say you can look at the pharmaceutical sector and look at how much support they get in terms of you know, where the drugs are, are, who buys the drugs, and in terms of where the money comes from research, all sorts of sectors. So this corporate dependency, which is anti-innovative, because, because if you're relying on the state, or if the state is providing you with funds, either either where your revenue is coming from, or other ways that that money is that resources are flowing in, then that also is a is a is a, is a block to you having to innovate. So the the dependency ex exists across the across the economy, uh, and so even the ones which I say are strongest, even the the, the one percent or the five percent who seem to be most profitable, are also uh, subject to that uh, uh, that uh, uh, that that state influence. Which then is a huge problem because that, that that is the state, and that's the that's the problem I had in terms of writing the book. It's not so much I'm seeing the state as the agency for change, but it is the demos which is the agency. It's us who has to be the agency for, for change. Nothing will happen without the sort of national conversation, is the way I put it, national debate, the the, the same sort of discussions. And I know it might seem a bit utopian, but the same sort of discussions which we began to have locally, not the national discussion about Brexit, but the local discussions which were happening, which were a bit higher quality than the ones which were watching on the, on the TVs or the ones which were being, being uh, generated by the, the leads on both sides. You need that sort of, that sort of, that sort of uh, discussion to actually embrace that we have a problem here, but we have a possibility of changing things. 
Uh, but that change can't come about just through individuals. It has to come about through a collective agency or collective vehicle, you know, agency vehicle, a collective vehicle. And that vehicle is going to be something like the state institutions, not the existing state institutions, um, not populated in the same way, but it is something which isn't, we can't rely on the private sector to do, I'm saying, or we can't rely on just on those individuals. It is a collective project. Um, now, if in the course of this conversation, you know, we can all, you know, come up more imaginatively with different ways and different mechanisms for how we do that collective activity, then that's fine. But at the moment, I think we can use, I think in terms of a, as part of the education discussion process going on, we can use things like the fact that, you know, May has said, or uh, Theresa May has said, we're going to have an industrial strategy consultation. Now, I know their industrial strategy is going to make things worse, and that's what I've said in my submission. Carry on the way you are, it actually is going to embed and reinforce the zombie economy, the way you're talking about it at the moment. But there's a debate there, and obviously the debate we'll have isn't just the one which we've sent in to their, you know, uh, their office. We'll try and have, use those submissions to have a broader debate to actually say there is this possibility of doing things differently. There is this possibility of a different type of industrial strategy, which, by the way, on, on your point, Gene, industrial strategy, when we talk about industry, we're not talking about you know, uh, car manufacturing and steel production. We're not talking about industry in that old-fashioned sense. Industry includes the services as well. We're talking about the economy overall. Any productive services included. So that includes, you know, manufacturing, it includes uh, utilities, it includes construction, it includes services. I mean, services, as you say, is 70, 80% of the economy, but just about everything is services. You have to break it down a bit more of that, but it includes services as well. Um, and so having that conversation about how, those, how that, that whole economy, sorry, how that whole economy could be regenerated through some sort of industrial policy, even though that's identified at the moment with this horrible, reactionary, backward um, uh, state which exists as it is at the moment, at least it's a, it's a vehicle for us, it's, not, it's a vehicle for us to have that discussion. And that's what I think we need to have. Because I think, going back right to the start, the problem is that too many people and uh, too, too much of the discussion on this subject is assumed that it is out of our control, it is out of our hands. Just like you know, the discussion now about Brexit is assumed that that's really out of our hands. I mean, my, my frustration with Brexit, just to perhaps make, make that point on that, is that, is that it's, it's not that Brexit and leaving the European Union is going to miraculously change anything. The problem we have, in fact, is, is, is the one I've been writing about more recently, which is the old Brussels excuse that we can't do anything because we're dictated to by Brussels has been turned into the Brexit excuse. We can't do anything about the economy, as Hammond didn't in the last budget, because we've got Brexit coming up. We can't do anything because of this big problem. We can't do anything because of this complexity of trade deals. We can't do anything because of all the problems which we've got over the next two years and all the uncertainty and so on. And it's become an excuse for actually getting on with homegrown problems. Brexit is a diversion. You know, We'll disagree on this. We'll have a chat about it. But Brexit itself isn't going to make or break the economy just as being in the, EU, in the EU didn't make or break the economy, because our problems are primarily homegrown problems. They're not problems in Brussels, they're not problems in China, they're problems within you know, our territory. And any excuse which is used to avoid that is the continuation of this great evasion, a term I, I use in the book. It's an evasion of the recognition of the problems being at home and the recognition amongst people that we can do something about it. And that's what the book's trying to uh, stir up. First, let's